0: You're going to get knocked down a lot, and you just have to never pay attention to that. Don't take the rejection personally, and just remember that whoever rejects you on Tuesday, the person on Friday might be telling you, you're great, wonderful, we want you here on our staff, we want your work, whatever. You just don't know. I've known a lot of wonderful writers, naturally good writers. I was so envious that they had such a great gift, and they gave it up because they got discouraged.
1: This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by writer and poet Joe Pitkin. Thanks so much for joining us, Joe. Let's dive right in. Take us back to the very beginning of your love of words. How did it all begin? That goes back a long ways, but I could tell you that
0: my parents loved to read to us when we were kids, when we couldn't read, of course. And one of the things that I, I, when my parents have asked me how I got into poetry, I always blame them. <laughs> <laughs> so they read us poetry. They read us A Child's Garden of Verses by Robert Louis Stevenson as one of the examples. And I, I just think that that was the start of my loving the sound of the words. Maybe I just like the sound of their voices. But, mm-hmm. but you know, all, I think for anybody becoming a writer, I'm sure they can pinpoint different teachers they've had. All through elementary school, I had teachers who loved poetry, and I think if they hadn't, I might not have gotten that same love of it. Um, And I would say I started writing poetry probably around eight years old, and the journey continued through elementary school, all those other grades. Um, High school was uh, another watershed because I actually submitted my work to a high our high school's contest, uh, writing contest, and. One third prize. I think that was a big boost to my interest. I suddenly got a little bit of good feedback Mm -hmm. instead of just writing to myself in you know, journals. And I also started submitting work nationally as a teenager because I heard that Sylvia Plath did it and got published. Well, I didn't get published, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, there was a consistent strain from the time I was eight years old that I was interested in writing. I didn't quite know what form, but it was, I was definitely drawn to poetry. And then by the time I got to college, I, this is where I think a lot of people listening would, um, relate. I really didn't think you could, um, major in poetry. And back then, a while ago, you couldn't, there were only a few schools where you could actually get a creative writing major, So I set my sights on journalism. That was the only kind of writing I really knew about. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was going to backtrack to the high school story, but also I joined the high school literary magazine staff. Ours happened to be called Gambit. Is there any high school literary magazine that has a good name? (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard one. (laughs) Reflections, isn't that here? I don't know. Or is that Insights? Yeah. Um, You know, they're, they're all dorky names, but the important thing is if you get on a staff, you start to see, you start to understand how important it is to treat other people's writing respectfully. You see the process of selecting, you see the process of putting it together, You know, I I think it's changed with technology, but it's still the same idea, arranging people's work. And I think that's such an important step. I think all high school students need that experience if they're interested in writing, even if they're not, if they don't pursue
1: it um, later on. Because it teaches them perhaps not to take it personally, that there's there's a a process and the reasoning may not be about their work it was just about putting together the publication well just to see how the publication evolves Mm -hmm. and I
0: think also there's some joy in it I mean I think there's a joy again of not being in isolation but seeing that other students are writing and you know, I'm not saying I remember all of my high school classmates writing, I just remember how excited we were when we had our finished product, and we had the issue. And, you know, we did have to make decisions about what would be on the cover. And would that photograph go with this piece of work? And so we had to make certain, just structural um, decisions. And I think that, I mean, again, for, because I ended up as a career in pub- book publishing this was enormously helpful just to start to see that process even on that level
2: and it sounds like there was social cohesion among you all there was a because you were all working towards a goal uh, oh yeah we had an identity process
0: sure we had an identity and i mean you know we have our picture in the yearbook apparently too i had forgotten that um, I think that's important as well. I, again, you, if you meet like-minded people even in high school, that I think that gives you more interest in that subject matter. You know, it's not like being on a team exactly, a sports team, but might have similar um, basic, you know, experiences. And, and you might feel, like I said, I, not that we cheered when the issue came out, but we had a feeling of accomplishment. So I think that was important.
1: Yeah, and you have a sense of community around that, around putting together that publication. Yeah, and
0: I mean, this is too long ago for me to remember exactly, but I don't think we really rejected very many pieces. I mm-hmm. think we were selective, but we didn't have such a you know, gigantic amount of work coming in that we couldn't have used something by everyone. Mm-hmm. But I think that those are all good lessons to start learning early on. Um, Of course, the same is true of when I applied for the contest and won third prize. I think I won exactly a dollar, or it could have been three dollars, (laughs) but it was a humble and modest beginning. (laughs) And I remember my best friend won second prize, and I know exactly who won first prize. I, I remember this very well. They are not writers. They went into other Things. So I mean, you know, but I think it's just again, an affirmation. It's so important. I think when you're younger, I don't care who you are. I think you, you might think you're the greatest writer on the planet, but you really do need that affirmation and something to, you know, show tangibly. Look at this. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I did with the $3. I probably bought a can of
1: soda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you went to, to college, majored in Writing. Writing. So
0: this piece of the story is pretty interesting. Um, I think that a lot of students, again, maybe today, I don't know if this is so relevant, but when I went to college, again, I thought absolutely I was going to study English or study journalism because no one had ever said you can study creative writing. That may have been because there were so few programs. There were probably less than half a dozen that, uh, where you could actually get a bachelor's degree in writing. Now that might sound funny today because there are hundreds and hundreds, <laughs> but the it was an evolving discipline. So I just happened to go to a very progressive uh, women's college, Kirkland College, um, very unique in all ways, including no grades, just evaluations. The whole structure of the school was very different. It was very a place totally for empowering women. So this was a great choice for me. Um, but it also allowed you to study creative writing and get your degree. So that's where what I did. Um, I had the opportunity to study with two poets who are now pretty well known. They At the time, they didn't even have books out. But Tess Gallagher is one of them, and the other is Michael Burkhard. So in the poetry world, they're known. And um they were great teachers, great mentors. And again, they. this is when I think luck comes into so much of our journeys. I mean, you sometimes wonder, how did I get here? But the, just being at the right college for me just happened to be. They had the program. They had the infrastructure. They had the teachers. These teachers loved my work. They pushed me very, very hard, very hard. Um, they also... Uh, my teacher Michael said to me, "What are you going to do after college?" And I again had no clue. And he said, "I think you need to go to the University of Iowa and study writing." I had never known you could go to a graduate program in writing because, again, there were, at the time I went, there were six in the whole country. Now there are about six thousand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, th- those kinds of fateful things, where and I was. Always open to these suggestions. I I was a little hesitant on that one because I just didn't think I was ready. But I think it's very interesting that that's what I did. I did go to. I applied only to one graduate program, got in, went. (laughs) Was really young. (laughs) I survived. I made a beeline right to the literary magazine, and I was on the staff right from freshman year. I started submitting work, publishing in that magazine in college, and. What really changed my, probably my career path was uh, sophomore year, the current editor was trying to recruit a new editor, and we had to actually apply to the publications board, which is now the media board. And I was really hesitant. I, there had not been a woman editor of the magazine ever. And I just thought, uh, am I really ready for this? I don't know, telling people what to do. But I applied, he seemed so confident in me, I applied, I got it, I beat out other older students. And so for my junior and senior years, I was the editor, and I completely changed the magazine. I renamed it, changed what what it looked like, instituted all kinds of new policies. And the magazine, I'm happy to say, still is being published under that name that we gave it um, many, many decades later. (laughs) So I feel like I did a good thing because now so many students at that school, it's a badge of honor to be on the staff. Their staff is 10 times what we had, and so is their budget. Mm. But I had to learn all of that, learn how to follow a budget. I'm really horrible at math. I'm just terrible. And I was scared when they said, you're going to have to use college money and pay for the printing costs. And you know, I had to make sure I came in under budget. And so there were a lot of a lot of interesting issues that came up that had nothing to do with writing a good line of poetry. <laughs> but again, I felt like I was doing a good thing for the campus that, that gave a, an outlet for all the students to publish in, and um, and some of them have gone on to be pretty famous. Uh, not a whole ton, but you know. Pe- People who succeeded me as editor all most of us went into some form of book
1: publishing as a career. so it's kind of exciting. <laughs> I keep hearing in your story um, the guidance that you kind of received from professors, from senior senior staff. That sounds like it was very instrumental in in your being able to move forward and put yourself out there and take risks that you didn't really quite know whether or not you could handle.
0: Yes. I mean, the the other side of what you're very astute to say that the other side of that is I really lacked confidence. I really was not confident in any of this. It was all so new to me. I didn't have any real models. My parents are scientists, so I grew up in a family of scientists. So I really, I didn't have any, um, anybody really pushing me toward literature or writing. And I think that each of these different thresholds were really important. And certainly a teacher saying to me, you you really need to apply to the University of Iowa. I didn't know then. It was then and now the best program in the country for poetry and other genres. So you know that was a lot for a girl from a small town, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that yes. They, but I think, and not every person who's listed can possibly get this experience. I mean, not every story is going to be the same. But I think if you look to the to look for models and look for people who you can trust. Um, there are a lot of people I wouldn't have wanted to get advice from, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but it just happened that my teachers seemed invested in my work and that meant a lot. I mean, if they thought what I was saying or how I was saying it was worth doing it, then I was going to keep doing it. And I have to say, not, um, I want to say two weeks ago, I talked to my first creative writing teacher. He's a fiction writer. He's still writing. He's in his nineties. And I gave him a little call. And we've been friends all these years. He was an advisor. We had to do a senior project in college. This was what happens at a progressive school. Mm -hmm. We didn't just, you know, we had to actually plan for a year a senior project. So if you can find people like that, maybe I'm just lucky, but I think you can look for people like that. And people will be willing to help because they remember how hard it is to get, you know, to get through all of that insecurity and doubt and just not knowing the right places to go or who to ask for help. That's why I wanted to do the podcast, by the way, because <laughs> people and have helped me.
2: Yeah. What, what fields of science were your parents in?
0: Uh, my dad taught biology and my mom studied chemistry and my sister studied geology and is a an expert in global biodiversity. So I am in a family. I am the black sheep. <laughs>
2: The white sheep, <laughs> yeah, right, right.
0: And they left me. I always tell them, Thanks, you left me physics,
1: <laughs> one of the subjects I barely passed. <laughs> so, did, did your parents have any strong opinions about what you should pursue in college as a career? Again, I really
0: actually this is where my mom comes in to play. Um, I was you know, toy- I, I'm a practical person, even though I write poetry, I, I knew I'd have to make a living someday. I assumed that I assumed that I was going to have to pay some bills and might not have somebody else paying them for me. So I toyed with this a lot. And I kept thinking, oh, I should just study English because I love literature. I can teach after I study it. And, you know, but I, this creative writing thing was out there floating around. And so I remember calling my mother. I think it's sophomore year when you have to have declared, right, Mm -hmm. your major. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I'm remembering. But I remember this phone call where I called and said, "Um, I don't know, what do you think? Because it's, you know, their money uh, that you're spending. And she just said, do study what you love. And I think that was huge. And she also was very supportive, although a little bit worried when I said, hey, guess what? I'm going to <laughs> Iowa. And she said, we're very happy for you. It's just awfully far away <laughs> because, you know, I was grew up in New York. So mm-hmm. I, I think they were a little bit hesitant about that too. But they were always supportive and have always read my work, even if they say I don't understand it. So I, I think that's fine. I think that's another thing. This would be a bit of advice. Share your work with those around you share it with friends who don't read poetry, and explain it if you can. And, you know, my I took my mother to see Rita Dove do a reading. She was, um, at the time, the poet laureate of the United States. My mother really remembers that reading. She really enjoyed it. It was Rita Dove happens to be a very good reader. But My former husband has been to many poetry readings. He had no interest in poetry, (laughs) but I always would say, "Well, if you go to them, you'll learn about these poets." And he's seen many Nobel Prize-winning poets. So, I think that's also something I learned: is not to exclude people, but to you know, not to force them into it either. If they don't want to read it or write it or look at it or hear it, Mm -hmm. that's okay too. But I think that's a really good thing if those around you kind of have an idea of what you're doing. I think that's important.
1: Now, what, what about the vulnerability that often stops people from sharing their work? Because that that's kind of a big step for a lot of people. They well, don't feel comfortable
0: sharing their especially work. Especially if you're saying something about them, I guess, right? I mean, it depends. on If you're writing about family, it could be really painful. Mm-hmm. Um Luckily, I ha- I don't think I've written anything terribly <laughs> <laughs> negative. But, you know, I think you're, the self-disclosure that you do, sometimes you don't want people to know this much about your life. Um, that's where I always, if I'm really worried about that, I always think, you know, if I'm willing to write this down on paper, send it out to magazines, then those people around me are going to be okay reading whatever I've written. Um You know, there are a lot of ways around that. That's a good question, though. I I think the vulnerability is sometimes the insecurity you have. Again, am I good enough? Is this really okay? Or does this sound idiotic? Why am I sharing this with anyone? But I think you get over that. I started publishing when I was 21 nationally, and that was a good thing. I mean, I'm glad I sent stuff out. I was encouraged to do that again by my professors, who were so confident in me that one of them said, you should send this to The New Yorker. I'm still trying to get in the New Yorker, (laughs) so (laughs) I'm not holding that out as a big goal, but I remember thinking, really? Uh, That seemed even crazy to me at the time, as, you know, I was probably 22, I mean, but I think that um, probably insecurity is what holds people back, not so much feeling vulnerable because of the material, just because they're not sure if it's really good, you know, I I think then share it with the people that you are most comfortable with first, and then get a feeling from that.
1: Mm-hmm. the The positive encouragement from your teachers, you know, with the example that you gave about, oh, you should submit it to the New Yorker. That had to have been real a real boost to your confidence about your own ability. So is it like inch by inch you kind of building? Definitely inch by inch. I feel like it's that's a almost a lifetime struggle, and I
0: still struggle with this, although. I have to say my next book of poetry is coming out in the winter of 2020, so not that long from now. Mm -hmm. And this is the first book that I sort of wrote without lots of people holding my hand. I I really, I did float the idea of it to some friends and got a good feeling from what they said, but without showing people the work, um, I was still kind of worried. So I did, but I only had two readers and one was a poet and one wasn't. And I think that's also good always to have, because you want to reach people who are outside of that and not necessarily students of poetry. So that was helpful. But I thought that I've really come a long way to get to the point where I only needed two readers, not 20. And, you know, there are whole workshops being given, I'm sure, right here in town, um, where people will go for feedback. There are are manuscript uh, conferences where people go and just, bring their manuscripts with them and get feedback from people they don't know. I think that's a little tough way to go. I'm not sure that would be my advice to try that. Um, But I think inch by inch is the way to put it. It, Every time I've had a success, I feel pretty good for a while, but also it's a field of rejection. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you're going to get knocked down a lot, and you just have to never pay attention to that. I was thinking about that before we were having this discussion. That that would be that would be the really important advice to anyone getting into any creative field, any field at all. Don't don't take the don't take the rejection personally. And just remember that whoever rejects you on Tuesday, the person on Friday might be telling you you're great, wonderful. We want you here on our staff. We want your work, whatever. You just don't know. Because so many, I've known a lot of wonderful writers, naturally good writers. I was so envious that they had such a great gift, and they gave it up because they got discouraged and they couldn't get anywhere. And they just... and I'm sure that's true in every field: dance, music, whatever, right. <laughs> science. <Sure. laughs> you know, if you don't, if you feel like you have, you know, you've solved the all the uni- questions of the universe, that you can't get it out there. And but I think I think it's really important not to even dwell on that. I mean, I used to be a lot more, um, you know, I'd be knocked down for a while and I wouldn't submit work once I got too many rejections piled up. Mm -hmm. Classmate of of mine at Iowa had a great idea. He said he just, and this again is going back to the dark ages before we could submit on submittable on our computers, Mm -hmm. that he would take all the addresses of the magazines. He also arranged the magazines in his head. These are really Reachable, these are too high. You know, you'd have a range of some are really going to be competitive to get into. But he just addressed a whole bunch of, like a year's worth of envelopes and had the stamps on them ready to go. And the stuff would come back to him. Thanks, but no thanks. A lot of times they say things like, This isn't for us, which makes you wonder well who is it for (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you get these rude rejections but he just took it in stride he put the stuff back in the next envelope sent it out again almost like a machine and i i really wish i could do that more effectively but i thought that was a great idea he just didn't let let it bother him he didn't sit on these poems or whatever and he just sent them out
1: so he had his very own way of doing thank you next yes (laughs) yes yes (laughs)
2: It seems to me that after doing the work itself, that's probably the the most important thing is not to become hopeless with rejection that that just discourages you from doing anything further.
0: Yeah, and there, there's also other circumstances. I mean, of course, there's cultural stuff, right, that puts people, um, you know, on a different track. I mean, I didn't uh, mention this, but I think. In high school, I didn't think about this at all, but by college, of course I was at a feminist college, so we all thought, well, of course women are going to be fine. But the um, literary world at that point was dominated by men, and men ran the magazine, so they weren't really looking for women's voices. Um, it was just a little bit harder to get the work into the ha- right hands of people, a lot harder to get published. And, you know, I think... Th- I think those cultural changes are positive obviously because people of any you know it was really dominated by men that's all I'm going to say but I think you know it's not true anymore and that's a big step so I don't think people today would have those problems although you know there's still there's a organization called Vida and I'm trying to remember what the acronym stands for but it is they keep account of how many women are published in various literary magazines and by publishers, and they try to see what the proportions are. Women are still trailing pretty heavily. But, I'm, you know, that, that world has changed a lot. But I did face that. I was right in—I had headwinds. <laughs> I had to, you know, I, I joked with my friends when I used to send my book manuscripts out for a contest trying to get pub, publisher— I said, I'm going to put an E on the end of my name <laughs> because, you know, my name ah, is Joe, yes. right? Mm-hmm. But I And then I think there were some people that started using initials to just disguise that because they didn't want to be judged on any basis but the work. Right. So,
1: there's so a lot did of, you do that?
0: No, I didn't do that. No, no, <laughs> I didn't. But, you know, it just took longer. It really took a long time to get yeah. published, so...
1: Let's talk about the, as you say, the downsides, the the obstacles, or the the things to avoid within the field. I think in poetry,
0: I think jealousy is a tough one, and there's a lot of it. I mean, uh, amongst friends and for peers, you know. I think that's so silly. I, I actually think if we all looked at it, there's a pie. Mm-hmm. We all do have a piece of it. But the pie is so marginalized. Why fight over those slices? I mean, really, people need to band together. As I said, bringing more people into poetry readings would be a great thing. Not, You know, just to make it more entertaining or make it more appealing to people, not to push people out of that. But I think writers have a little bit of problem with professional envy. Mm-hmm. So that would be one thing I'd say try to avoid. Um, and I, again, I said about the disappointment and also don't think you're going to make tons of money. I don't think my royalties would probably buy us all a couple of cases of beer. I mean, you know, it's it's a real it's a little bit daunting um, to explain this to people because everyone knows I have four or five books out. I should have uh, a really nice living. But that's not for poetry. That's not going to happen. Mm. And that's. That's not a disappointment. That's more of a a knowledge that I've come, you know, I've come to learn this. So, mm-hmm.
2: can one make
0: money at poetry? Or do you always yeah, well, need a
2: second way mm, to? I
0: don't know too many people that don't have a second secondary source of income, whether that's grants or um, a spouse or a partner or you know some family help. There's a lot of ways to get to that, but I think. You know, there's very rare people, even Billy Collins works, you know, he's probably the most well-known popular poet, maybe. Um, They work hard. These people are getting old and they're out there going on reading tours and they teach at all kinds of conferences. And, you know, I don't think that there's, you know, I think it's possible to reach a point where you're so well-known and you're so acclaimed that you can take a little bit of a breather, but... think it's good to have another another thing that you can do to support yourself of course these are times where most people are teaching um but even that if you look at the salaries and you know an adjunct professor is not doing so terrifically so I mean those are the those are the things that if I were to if I had known this at my at 18 I'm not sure how I would have played this all I think I just had a lot of optimism that it would all be fine
1: um but it is tough that part is tough so overall do you would you recommend taking this kind of a a dual track for someone who wants to be a creative writer well i've I think there are a lot
0: of, again, there are a lot of interesting combinations. That happened to be the one I kind of landed into, but I know of, I mean, not a lot. I mean, I know of at least a couple of people who went into medicine and write poetry. It's really amazing that you could have a degree in poetry and be a doctor. Very few of them. I know a couple of people who... Um, went into business Dana Joya I was just in touch with him recently he was for a while the head of the NEA and he does, doesn't have a ton of books he has about the same number of books that I do but he's well known and well regarded um he was uh, worked at uh General Foods for about 15 years um in White Plains <laughs> so mm-hmm. he had a he had an MBA uh, so he had the MBA and he had his poet love of poetry Um, same thing. I know a poet from Katona who, uh, Robert Phillips, he was in advertising for 30 years, but is quite successful. And, you know, eventually I think that you could really burn out trying to do the two lives, especially demanding careers, like being a high level executive. I think you could really have a hard time trying to get enough energy to write poetry, but, think those combinations are possible I I knew somebody who was going to law school after Iowa so I think that it's not I almost think it's um maybe the way academia is going it might not be a bad idea to try and combine with something that's practical and I, I was um just at a poetry reading last night at Bryant Park actually in the city And I was sitting next to, you won't believe it, a textbook author. (laughs) Very strange to have that conversation. But what I realized is that, um, you know, again, poetry appeals to a lot of people in in different fields, and you don't have to just be in a school or in a school setting to enjoy it. And I just think it's interesting to, you know, you, you realize that people have to make a living and they can do it. From all sorts of perspectives. I mean, I just, I'm trying to think of other unusual career combos, but I knew someone who was a chemist and a young woman. Uh, I mentored a few college students over the years, and she was, I thought she would do well because I thought chemistry in combination with poetry, I'm not sure I ever heard of that combination. So I think if, and I think students today are a little more willing to have those really interesting, you know they'll have like two majors. They'll double major in things that sound really not together at all. Maybe that's a good thing. But I think you have to have you have to have an awareness of yourself. I mean, I don't think anyone should listen to this and say, "Well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'll do what she did." I think you have to sort of feel out what really works for you. Don't you? I mean, sure. I think if you force yourself into something that you hate, you're not going to want to stick with it. I actually like what I do, so that's why I'm still doing it. But I think, you know, people have to be willing to try different combinations. I
2: I suppose for some, if you're in a, a profession perhaps that you don't love, doing poetry helps you be happier in your life it's an outlet as an
0: outlet. Sure. You're right. I think I could see that too, but I'm just saying like, you really don't want to put all your energy into something that you're just, you know, dragging to an office or dragging to wherever. Oh, I
2: totally agree. Yeah.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, maybe that, you know, I also think self-employment is not for everybody. I think that can be a real, that, that's a whole other conversation, but you know, I think I happened to get there and I, at the time it, I, now it's ubiquitous. I mean, there's, consultants everywhere but when I was doing it I I mean I used to think it was kind of fun I'm sure people wondered what is she doing I was living in suburban Boston and FedEx would come and Airborne Express would come and I had taxis deliver manuscript to me I mean it was funny to see they probably had no idea because it wasn't that wasn't very common back then but I actually was on first name basis with every delivery person (laughs) you know (laughs) any kind of you know FedEx was here but um I think that that's a kind of that can be an isolating thing for people. So that wouldn't m- maybe work for everyone either.
2: But also, uh, that's kind of like the production business uh, in one form, which can be kind of exciting because there's deadlines and, and and there's an excitement to it. Even though there, it's difficult and you have to st- to work odd hours often. Um, it's a different kind of lifestyle you know so someone would have to be okay with that in that field
0: right 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 and I think um, also I've tried to do this and I've tried to also make those two worlds I mean the freelance world not so much maybe just the actual material I'm working on try to make those things connect I mean I've been on two separate paths for a long time but I've also noticed that they've gotten closer and closer as I've gone along and I An example of that is that many times the publishers I work for, it depends on what the project is, but not very long ago I was working on passages. It's to test skills, and of course I don't remember if it was New York State. It was a state-specific book, so I didn't have to write about the state, but I was just writing to their standards, and I think it was New York. But it was so interesting, the publisher said, and right here, because there was a standard about poetry, they said, we need a poem that I think I was working on a fifth grade book. So it had to be readable by fifth graders. That was so crazy. I've written poems. Many poems have gotten published in these books. No one knows it because it's all, you know, they don't put your name in there. And there's not a byline. I'm mm-hmm. actually happy because I think the real poetry that I do, it's not at all that same way. But it's so interesting to have someone ask me to write a poem. I've been asked to write folk tales, retellings of folk tales. I had to do a tall tale for a third grader the other day and crazy stuff. But it's, it's really fun. It's a challenge. I write a lot more fiction as, as in that world. Um, and then the flip side of that is I was doing a passage. I had to come up with a story. So I was trying to think of something. And I thought, gee, a, a luna moth came to me at, at my house. And I had never seen one before. So I did a little research. I was like, oh, they're really interesting. And I wrote a little story based on this just little incident about this kid f- finding a luna moth and saying, oh, I'm going to look up all the information and kind of what I did. And the story was cute. It had a little dialogue. It had a happy ending. Nothing bad happened. And um, I think the, uh, the story you know, stuck in my mind so much that I ended up writing a poem based, again, based on the experience, but also looking back at the story, I used a lot of the lines from the story in my poem. And that poem is in like, published in, I think, the second book I have out. So it's and it's called Luna Moths. It got published in a really good um, literary magazine, too. But it's so funny, you never think like something you did for the textbook world would be, you know, something that you'd write about. I had also researched Ada Lovelace, um, Byron's daughter, who really was sort of the first, quote, computer programmer, many, many years ago, just looking for interesting women to write about. I had written some nonfiction passages about her and later used her. I wrote a poem in her voice, and that poem has been all over the place because there are not a lot of people who have written about mathematicians, apparently, <laughs> mm-hmm. and not, not one so interesting, interesting life, but... That's where those lives, those things have crossed over, and I, I kept them separate for so long. I know what I was going to say before, that what I've learned is that if you're in a different profession, you know, poets can't possibly support other poets as much as we would like. I mean, you can't expect everybody to show up at your readings, buy your books, read your stuff. However, when you're in another field where there's not that, you know, there's not a block to that. Um, My best readers and people who will go and click on Amazon and buy my books are all people I've known as editors, uh, fellow textbook writers. They're enormously supportive, really nice, smart people. So there is an upside to all of that, to meeting people in in a different field but kind of related. They appreciate good writing, and I'm always shocked when I realize how much they've supported me over the years. And it goes
2: back to what you said earlier about sharing your work.
0: And it's as Laura said, it is hard. It is hard to share it sometimes because you feel like you're bludgeoning people with your, you know, look at me. You feel like a little (laughs) kid. Look what I did. But yeah, I think I don't force that either. I've let people decide if they want to read this stuff or not. And I think it's really great. I mean, I've gotten really, you know, almost chills thinking about the people that I've I maybe worked for years and years ago, and then they'll write to me and say, I just read your book, blah, 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 whatever. Um, I think it's amazing. But they are, they don't, in other words, they don't have any skin in the game. So they're they're not like in competition with you. They just want to support you. So if you're going to be, I mean, you could be a poet and a welder. I don't see why you couldn't. Maybe the other welders would be nice to you. I don't know. (laughs) But I think... I think that's what I'm trying to say is not to be so locked into this idea that poetry is just this and you can only teach and you can't do other things. That's my story anyway.
1: So uh, going back to your career as a poet um and having your works published what was the evolution of that? How how did that proceed um in your in in the dual path of you know, submitting yourself and and submitting yourself for publication, you know, because obviously you have a number of books that have been published. Right.
0: Well, I was going to say that process, I could one word, slowly. It really went slowly. And I mean, again, we're only human. You have 24 hours in the day. Some of that you need to be sleeping and eating and ironing and whatever (laughs) chores you have. Um, When I was younger, I was really diligent about Look, I still do this. I look into new magazines. Now there's so many different ways to publish. You can publish, you know, digital magazines. I mean, there's so many literary magazines that are strictly online. Um, but I, you know, I used to, I used to buy magazines. I subscribed to a lot. I would look at them. I'd figure out, do I think this is some place I want to submit? And I was diligent. I really did submit a lot. I was lucky to publish in a bunch of magazines when I was younger, and they're pretty good ones. Um, not the New Yorker, <laughs> as I said, <laughs> but I think that, um, I got into a habit. I was in a good habit for many decades, really. But then when you start realizing you're ready to do a whole book, and this, this is, uh, this is what I was saying about not getting knocked down by disappointments. I think the worst thing that happened to me as a poet was I was up for, this was five years out of graduate school. So I was still in my twenties. And I was a finalist in a, at the time, a really, I think it's probably still around, a good contest called the Wesleyan New Poets series. And it was just a a known contest. And I was a finalist and I was very close to being the winner. (laughs) Only the winner gets published. It was me and another guy. I can't tell you his name. It's good that I've forgotten. He did go on to have a nice career, but... That was a a hard turn for me because I think things would have been very different and I may have put a different emphasis on my life if that book had come out. I may have also not been prepared for it. Maybe Mm. things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. But um, happily, another version, a much more mature version of that manuscript did get published. But about five years out of school, you know, our, our, um, our MFA program, in order to graduate, had to write an exam. Of course, you had to take all the classes that they told you to take. You had to prepare a thesis. It had to be, you know, a certain length. It was book length. So I had a book length thesis, which, you know, was a lot to do, (laughs) frankly, in two years. But we all had to do it. That's how you graduated. and that was a good experience, too, because you suddenly look at your work differently, not just as individual pieces, but you're trying to see how do they talk to each other, these poems, and how do they all fit together? And what is going on here? And what's the title of it? And all of that was pretty interesting. And but so a version of that was going out, I was trying to publish it. And that's, that was a very devastating, close call. So I was a bridesmaid a lot (laughs) after (laughs) that. But then, uh, you know, so uh, probably I did lose steam there. I mean, I, I started working on new book manuscripts rather than dwell on the rejecting, but it it took me a long time. And all of a sudden, not that long ago, all these books started coming out. So I think that's another thing, you know, I let the dust collect, it was true, but I would go back and I would look at them again. And I'd say, I think I want to move this around. And, now I think it's a little easier. This new book I did sit down and write. It took like eight years altogether, but that's not uncommon for me. I'm a really slow writer when I write poetry, and you know I think from the time I started it till the time it comes out, it's about eight years. So,
2: and by the time you're done, you're a new person because I believe all your cells turn over every <laughs> seven years. <laughs> oh,
0: really? It is cyclical in that way. Okay, that, that's probably true. I mean, you know, that's a horrifying thought that that takes that long but i've noticed each of these books has taken about that long so
1: well you are and you're busy with a lot of other, the things other things at the same time sure. it's not like you're you know
0: and that might be the one again for somebody listening to this who says well i want to publish more than that and i want to be just writing i mean i think again that's a little tough i don't know too many people who are solely just writing um but It's true. If you're trying to, I'm always really conscientious about my work too, the paying work. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're a conscientious person, I mean, maybe it'd be easier to have a job you just leave at nine and I mean at five, and you don't think about and you know, I don't know. But I'm conscientious, so I do meet the deadline. But usually
2: those nine to fives don't have the kind of creativity that you're talking about needed for.
0: Right, and they might not pay as well. I mean. I'm sure they don't. I mean, again, you know, be interesting. I haven't talked to somebody in a long time who I had a friend back in Boston who insisted that he would never do anything. He was a waiter. He was a waiter into, well, longer than you want to know. But he was a waiter because he thought that gave him the freedom to just go home and write. He didn't think about the restaurant, but he he did. He worked at a high end restaurant. But still, um, I would think that would be a weird career choice. But for him, it worked.
1: Well, because yeah, he could just put it to the side. He had the 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 structure of you know this portion of the day I'm working, and then
0: and I'm going to guess he was a morning person, maybe you know, because they work such late hours. But maybe by the time he got up, he was like, okay, I have my my day, you know, to write. I don't know. I've known people who worked in bookstores. I think that's a little bit like me, a little close to you know, you're still dealing with books, but. Mm-hmm. There are are a lot of different possibilities. It's just that maybe I'm saying this because right now young people going to college, they're getting really—most of the reasons I've um, mentored college students is the college professors don't know what to tell students about the working world. So this is actually, I hope, helpful to somebody um, listening to this. But the professors only know— One And many of them get PhDs. That's not even just an MFA story. That's getting a PhD and you can get it in literature or creative writing. But they, you know, are telling students what they know, but they don't know of these other options. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why some students have also come to me on their own, not just that the professors sent them to me, but they always think of me as the person with the publishing career. So. Poetry, it's so small. It's a very small group of people, relatively speaking, and I think it's really important to try and form really good relationships in that world. That might be a skill I can't quite explain how to do it, but I think it means respecting people's work and trying to, um, you know, show up when they're doing an event, and it's sort of hard to do, but just... um, You know, just trying to form like a positive relationship. And I think that's helped me also. I think a lot of editors have been really pleased. You know, I get praise for replying quickly. And this is to an editor who's going to be publishing my poem in their magazine. If they have a question, or you get, um, usually you get a PDF of the typeset, you know, poem, and they want you to check for corrections, which is kind of funny in this day and age um, because there really aren't, shouldn't be things that, got messed up mm. but I always reply and because I've worked in book publishing for so long I'm so sensitive to what they're what pressures they're under so I think I'm an excellent submitter of my own work <laughs> and I think I'm probably a dream to work with because I'm so professional but I, I wonder what like do writers just put this aside and not answer the email I don't know but I was I, I have to say, um, the New York Review of Books, which is probably my biggest publication, they they wanted to, me to add an apostrophe to something in the title, and I hadn't used an apostrophe there. I so quickly said, yes, put that apostrophe. Yes, that's great, <laughs> right? Because they only publish about 12 poets a year in their magazine. So I thought, what am I going <laughs> to say no? <laughs> and that's another thing. You have to be a little wary. Like, people will get freaked out with books that sometimes— um, it's a, I'm lucky because the publisher I work with, they let me kind of design the cover or at least make suggestions. But so many people, they're, they're surprised when the publisher says, I don't like that title, change it. This is not the cover for you. This is what we're using. And you have to be a little bit, again, flexible and mm. sort of look at the bigger picture. I mean, is it worth hanging on to that title? You know, I had one book that did have the same title in my head for a long time. But when the publisher didn't want me to use that title, I had to let go of that. Um, And I don't don't miss it. (laughs) I like (laughs) the book that came out. But writers can be, you know, their own worst enemy. But I think being professional about all of it, showing up um, readings, uh, some people have shown up in their running clothes, like just as though I, I went to a reading that made me mad. I thought, what, you don't care enough to put on a pair of jeans at least? Just showing up, like, here I am, I'm about to exercise, or maybe they were going to the gym after the reading. But I think people need to prepare and think about who's coming to listen. Um, I had to, a friend of mine who's now a very well known writer, but at the time, he was upset that he had six people at a reading. And I said, but think about it. Those six people had other stuff. They they had other things to be doing. They could have been watching a great movie somewhere or going out to dinner, but they're here to see you. And mm-hmm. I think he realized I was right, that you have to really respect that. I mean, yes, do you feel disappointed? You kind of wish that you had standing room only, but... That's somebody who took time out of their life to show up and listen to you and your work, so You can see where I'm coming from. I sound like a
1: Puritan, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I have Puritan ancestors, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So so knowing what you know now, is there anything that you would you would have done differently?
0: Well, again, I think if I had known it would be this long, it's a struggle. I mean, there's no question that it's hard to find time to be creative, hard to meet people's expectations in the work world, and you know, I've been been particularly faulted for that by friends who wished I could come out and play more often. Mm-hmm. But i I don't know. I don't know that I would have taken a different path and liked it any better. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wish I could get more. I I tried to figure out how to be a a named author on all these textbooks. I think there's a lot more royalties involved. The only way I could have done that was to get a PhD and come up with a really interesting pedagogical theory. If I could have thought of some amazing rationale for something, I would be on a book cover. But so many times I I realized that wasn't for me either. But I think just—I don't know that (laughs) I— No, I don't think I would have changed anything mm-hmm. um, and what was in my control i I did the best I could do. I think th- what the part I was saying about not making enough money that's not in my control. I mean, I could work more possibly, but I think you have to learn to live within that there's a like everything there's a salary range, and
1: you just have to enjoy the work and not get too frustrated by that part but Is there anything that you've always wanted to achieve that you haven't yet? I think we're back to the New Yorker.
0: (laughs) New Yorker. I was going to say, yeah, Pulitzer Prize is out there,
1: right? Um, Oh, there's a lot.
0: I mean, I certainly am hoping that I can start. I've always had a little bit of an imbalance where the poetry took a little bit less prominent role and the other stuff necessarily was taking more time and energy. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to see that shift a little. Right now I feel like they're pretty close to 50-50. And those are different skill sets also. I mean, really thinking of promoting books when you publish them, arranging readings, trying to get reviews, um, all of that. I just, it took me forever to get a website. I do have one. If anyone wants to contact me, they can look at www.joepitkin.com. There's a whole form in there where you can, um, write to me and I'll answer it. But I think it took me so long because I just, I had so many other things going on, but all of that, that's time consuming, important to have. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I still have a lot of things. I have two book projects in mind. I've half started, so I'm on to the next things. I'm still trying to make sure the new book is all ready to go. Pretty close. But, um, yeah, they're always, always huge things. This spring I taught my first online poetry workshop. That was interesting and very fun. I really enjoyed it. I didn't think I would, but I had to develop four lesson plans. It was just a month-long a course. And the lesson pl- plan took them through a week of different readings and exercises. And I had to comment on all the uh, results of those. And that was pretty interesting. I would do that again.
1: Wow. So it was uh, available for a limited time only. It's not something Correct. that's online right now. Right. It's through, um, there's an organization up in the
0: Catskills called the Poetry Barn. And this is what she does. She offers these courses. And many of them are, you know, interesting. And they're all different lengths. I think mine just happened to be a month long. Mm -hmm. But I just figured out what I wanted to teach and um, had students from as far away as Ohio. And I know that some people are doing this, of course, internationally even. So Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. I I don't know much about the whole online teaching world, but I found it kind of fun. (laughs) But that's what I'm saying. Like, there's always something around the corner that you could try. And and I again, I did the same thing that I've done as I've just been describing. I thought I will just put myself in this position and see what I think. So I only gave one proposal. I found out the trick is you propose four courses and see if they all get oh. accepted. But I just thought I put my little toe in the water mm-hmm. and tried. I just had one idea. I developed that. She liked it. We ran it. I had students, so that was good. But I think you have to be a little bit um, willing to take a few risks in this life. Yeah. I think work has to be fun. And Mm -hmm. you're going to spend so many hours thinking about it. You really have to find something that just works for you. I mean, I think some people don't realize you can construct your life. And that's what I keep trying to say. Like, you know, you can. You can... You don't have to follow what everyone else has done. You can make something a little different. You have to figure out what works. Sure.
1: Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank
2: you so much.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.